Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're continuing our series, The Fellowship of the Gospel. So turning your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Embracing a Fellowship of the Gospel. We started a new series in the book of Philippians, and I've entitled the entire series, The Fellowship of the Gospel. I've already made note of the fact that the title in itself might seem boring, but I also made note that the title is, in fact, really exciting. See, our difficulty is with the word fellowship. In Christian circles, the idea of fellowship means hanging out after church service, grabbing a cup of coffee, maybe talking about hockey or the weather, or if you're a farmer, about the crops or your work or your school, or as you and I know, simply catching up on our lives. But the word can actually be used in a different way. Most of us are familiar with J.R.R. Tolkien's trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. Perhaps you've just seen the movies, or perhaps you've also read the books. I mean, the books were written uh, from between 1937 and 1949, and they actually have sold about 150 million copies. That's truly remarkable. And as we know, the novel came out in three books, The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, and The Return of the King. But it's the first one, The Fellowship of the Ring, and how Tolkien views the word fellowship that really interests me. Frodo Baggins is a hobbit, which means he has furry feet, he's short, he lives in a house on the side of a hill, and doesn't like big adventures. But he is in possession of a ring that has an incredible power to corrupt. And unless the ring is moved from the Shire, that's where the hobbits live, it will destroy them. And to put the plot down to one sentence, Frodo is to take the ring and bring it to the fires of Mount Doom and throw it in. Mount Doom is the only place in Middle-earth where this ring can be destroyed. But the journey there and the adventures that accompany it are so great that Frodo cannot possibly accomplish his mission alone. Initially, he is accompanied by his dear friend Samwise Gamgee and two cousins Merry and Pippin. But eventually, Frodo and his friends will be joined by others, Aragon, Gandalf, Gimli, Legolas, and Boromir, and they form what's called the Fellowship of the Ring. And so the term fellowship is used not for a group of people who gather together and have coffee and talk about hockey, but for a group of people who band together for a common cause or who combine their resources in order to accomplish something they could never accomplish on their own. And that's how we will use the word fellowship in this series. And since I'm using the English Standard Version of the Bible, you'll notice that the translators of my Bible decided to translate that word koinonia, fellowship, as partnership. And that really does get at it. It's a partnership that has been formed in order to accomplish something significant. Drive the gospel into the heart of the Roman Empire. And by the way, I wonder if church would feel different if we actually used the word fellowship like that. I think that making a distinction between getting together to talk and getting together to plan for and accomplish gospel advancement would change forever how we conduct and operate fellowship groups. You know, as we read Philippians in this study, I want to serve you notice that unless you get that kind of a definition of fellowship, you'll miss the entire drama to the story. Unless you see that in this book, Paul and the church in Philippi formed a fellowship of the gospel. 
in order to preach Christ and form churches and transform lives into the heart of the Roman Empire, you're going to miss what this book is truly all about. Now, yesterday, I wanted us to notice how Paul actually came to Philippi, and because of circumstances he encountered there, he was able to stay in the city for only a short period of time. Two households had been won to Christ, the household of a businesswoman named Lydia and the household of the city jailer. And this formed the first ever European church. But Paul was thrown out of the city by the city officials, and his ministry there comes to an end. And so, in essence, the church is on their own. In the meantime, Paul moved on, going south, down the Greek peninsula into Thessalonica, back up to Berea, further south to Athens, and then to Corinth, all Greek cities. Eventually, he would return back to Antioch, which was in Syria, which was his home church. Would he ever visit the Philippian church again? Well, yes, he would. He would return one more time, but his stay there must have been short, for he was only in Greece that second time for three months. See, we're not told how much time he actually spent in Philippi, only that he set sail back home from the port in that city. As far as we know, this was their only physical contact. And yet, a church was born, and more so. This church and Paul would form one of the best fellowships or partnerships between a local church and a missionary apostle of all the other churches. So why are we reading Philippians? Well, it's because I have a dream that one day it would be impossible to live in this country without having to decide what to do with Jesus. I want to embrace a grand gospel vision, a vision that might be bigger than I can possibly imagine. And I know that the example of fellowship and the success of this fellowship found in this book can serve as a model. Of course, the first ever European church, the one in Philippi in Greece, had had a rocky beginning. And we're not deeply grounded in the gospel because Paul was not there long. That would take some time to develop. One has to wonder whether Paul felt it was likely that this church would fail. So that this is the beginning of the gospel in Europe and in the Roman Empire. Since we've called this the fellowship of the gospel, let's call phase one in the fellowship the fellowship before the Philippian letter was written. Paul would have seen a worldwide opportunity there. He would have seen a vision of a man from Macedonia, a region of Greece, calling on him to come. But he also would have seen that his first encounter with the preaching of the gospel had landed him in prison. It was to be a rough go along with a gospel advancement, would come opposition and persecution. Now, after Paul's success in Philippi, so much happens. And as we know, that by the time Paul writes this letter, he'd been arrested in Jerusalem. He'd spent two years in imprisonment in Caesarea without a proper trial. And in his desperation, he had appealed to Rome, lest he simply rot in that prison. And then he was placed aboard a ship as a prisoner. And then he was shipped to Rome to await a hearing before the emperor himself. So while all that was going on in Paul's life in which, well, we wouldn't blame him for being distracted and forgetting all about Philippi, what was going on in this church in Philippi? Well, let's read the first two verses in this book. It reads, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to point out a few things in that greeting that are of great interest. We'll discuss these verses fully in tomorrow's program, but for today, let me focus on one central issue. 
Please notice that when Paul greets this church, calling all of them saints, he takes care to mention the overseers and the deacons. This is the only letter he writes where he does that. Now, the word overseer comes from the Greek word episkopos, which in older translations was translated as bishop. But rather than thinking of the term bishop as a guy who wears, you know, funny and interesting clothing and oversees a number of churches, and that this guy happens to live in Philippi and is also active there, that's the wrong image. The term episkopos, in every place it's found in the New Testament, refers to a group of people who lead a local church only, very much like we would think of a local church pastor. Notice also that in Philippi, there are a number of overseers, not just one. Multiple bishops, pastors at the local level. Now, let's notice one more thing. Every single study of the word episkopos, bishop, and the Greek word presbyteros, translated as elder, find that both of these terms refer to the same office. In the New Testament, bishops are elders and elders are bishops. Now, it might be that the term elder was a leadership term more familiar in the Jewish world, and the term bishop was more familiar in the Greek and Roman world, but the two words refer to the same office. The idea is that elders who are shepherds, that is, they preach and they teach the gospel, they also help correct theological error, they involved in discipling the church, and in consequence of this spiritual ministry, they give oversight or leadership to their local church. Now, why am I mentioning all this? Because it would seem that at some time along the way, whether it was through the very real likelihood that Paul had sent Timothy to the Philippians and had taught them on his behalf or in some other way. This church had established the kind of leadership structure that is found in every other single New Testament church. They're not a free-for-all group doing their own thing. This local church was structured in exactly the same way that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, structured every other church that he led. That means that this church was now a fully-fledged, mature church of Jesus Christ. And when we come back, we will see why this church has so very much to teach us about evangelizing our own country. Today we're beginning to understand why and how the church in Philippi was so significant and influential in its location in Europe. Despite a rocky start, this church was grounded and united in a deep passion for the gospel. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld will further explain what the church today can learn from the Christians in Philippi and their devotion to a gospel-centered fellowship. Many of us find ourselves at home more than usual these days. The solitude can be a refreshing discipline, but a bit more challenging when it's thrust upon us. Today, I wanted to remind you of the many Bible teaching resources you can access for free through Back to the Bible Canada. Every weekday, listen to Dr. Newfeld on this radio station, online at backtothebible.ca, or through our podcast or free mobile app. Other resources include our weekly young adult program, In Doubt, or the daily airing of Laugh Again. And most recently, for five weeks beginning March 22nd, we'll begin to air a special Bible teaching video series aired every Sunday morning available at backtothebible.ca or the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. For more information about all of these resources and more, 
call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. We've been looking at a church that, in spite of a difficult beginning, was now functioning according to God's standards of Christian leadership. They functioned with elders and deacons. Now, this was only the beginning. Somewhere along the way, the Philippian church had become a model church, a standard for other churches to follow. Listen to Paul's description of them in Philippians 4, 15 to 16. There he says, And you Philippians yourselves know that at the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership or fellowship with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. See, the generosity of the Philippians was legendary. They joined other Macedonian churches in assuring that the ministry of Paul went forward. For instance, consider what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. I'm reading from 2 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9. There he says, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. And Paul meant, well, the Philippians. Earlier in the same letter, he tells how the Philippian church gave above what they were able, essentially impoverishing themselves to ensure that Paul's ministry of preaching the gospel to the lost would not be impaired. And so they decided to give beyond their means so that Paul would be free to preach. And that's what gives rise to this letter. The Philippian church, always faithful, always concerned for Paul's ministry, has sent a man named Epaphrodites to Paul in prison. They want to know what he needs, and they want to know what they can do now to help him and advance the gospel even while he's in prison. And that brings me back to the title of this series that I said was, you know, perhaps just a boring title. The title is The Fellowship of the Gospel. Twice in this letter, Paul mentions this word. The Greek word is the word koinonia, a word which many Christians know well. Fellowship is what Paul enjoyed with these people, a partnership or a fellowship in the gospel. See, our problem with understanding this book is that when we read this book, we think of coffee and barbecues and free-flowing conversations and just enjoying friendship with fellow Christians. Nothing wrong with any of those things. I'm all for that. But that's not how Paul uses koinonia in this letter. He uses it in the way that J.R.R. Tolkien used it. And that is exactly why we must not think the theme of this book is joy, because it's not. It's fellowship, the kind of fellowship that involves danger and a life-and-death struggle to bring the gospel of Jesus into the heart of the Roman Empire and so change the world. And then, surprisingly enough, in spite of the struggle and the suffering this fellowship entails, one is overwhelmed with how joyous this partnership has become. That's why this is an epistle of joy. So then, we've looked at the fellowship before this letter was written. Now let's look at the, the fellowship of the gospel that's in this letter. Notice, first of all, it's a fellowship expressed in faithfulness. Philippians 1, 27 to 28 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Remarkable. Don't break up the fellowship. Instead, be faithful until the task is done. 
and be faithful with one another. The second mark of the fellowship that we find in this letter is, of course, partnership. Look at verses 1, 3 to 5. I thank my God in all my prayers for you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership or fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. I mean, did you notice partnership is an agreement between two parties that they will not allow their mission to fail? And yet, along the way, is this drama. Paul is now standing before Caesar's tribunal, about to give a defense which might result in life or death, and the Philippians are wondering, what does this make of our partnership or our fellowship? Is the fellowship over now? Now, Please see the point of application for us. We need strong fellowships in this country that will not be satisfied until Canada is saturated with the gospel and until this land is transformed with the gospel. We need to believe that we have a mission in which we must partner with each other. See, that's why Back to the Bible is overwhelmed with the partnerships we enjoy with so many of you. But practically, what does that mean and how are we to accomplish this? Well, the answer is found in this 2,000-year-old book written around AD 61, used by the Holy Spirit to speak to us. And as we study this book, here's what we're going to find we're going to find that the fellowship makes specific demands of us. First of all, there is the demand of vision. We need to see how great is the gospel, what the gospel does to people who believe, how the gospel forgives sins and changes lives, and how God has called us to partner with each other in pressing this gospel forward into the heart of our country. We also need unity. How many of us know that vision is one thing? If it is pursued alone, it will result in nothing. In chapter 2, verse 2, Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. See, unity is a tough thing for us. Our culture teaches us that we should make a deep-seated commitment to self-fulfillment rather than attempt to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Unity makes requirements for us to live corporately as well, inviting us to set aside our own individual desires for the interests of the gospel in the company of others. So the fellowship demands first vision, then unity, and then humility. This is the reason Paul places that beautiful hymn of Christ's humility at the center of the book. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to tell of Jesus' amazing attitude. You have to have the attitude of Christ to press the gospel forward. And then another demand, sacrifice. You know, in 129, Paul says, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. How many of us think that you can press the gospel into the heart of our country without sacrifice required? You see, for us to get the gospel, well, that cost our Savior his life. It cost a train of martyrs. What cost will be demanded to bring the gospel into the heart of our land? Isaac Watts wrote a great hymn entitled, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? And then he included this line, Must I be carried to the sky on flowery beds of ease, while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? 
And so fellowship demands vision and unity and humility and sacrifice, and it will all be done in the cause of truth. You know, as we read through this book, we will see the great dangers that false gospels lie before the Philippians that seek to derail them. But in the end, lest we think it's all about sacrifice and suffering, lest we think it's all about duty, we come back to what we've noticed at the beginning. In chapter 1, verse 4, Paul writes of making my prayer with joy. And in chapter 1, verse 18, Christ is proclaimed, he says, and in that I rejoice. And in 125, he says, I will continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, complete my joy. And in chapter 2, 17 to 18, even if I am poured out as a drink offering, he says, I am glad. And in 228 and 29, he says, I'm eager to send Timothy that you may rejoice. And in chapter 3, verse 1, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And in 4, verse 1, therefore, my brothers, my joy and my crown. And in 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Paul knows that the mission will always involve sacrifice and humility and unity. But he knows in the end that nothing will give greater joy than to embark on this mission, this fellowship of the gospel. John, today you've challenged my idea of the word fellowship. It's not sort of a placid thing. It's much more than that. It's an adventure, isn't it? Yeah, you know, as we were talking in the break, you had mentioned that old hymn, What a Fellowship, What a Joy Divine, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. And we both noticed that you don't need to lean on the everlasting arms if you're just making coffee together and yakking. But you sure do need to lean on the everlasting arms if we have a common mission together, which is so great that we can't accomplish it unless God intervenes on our behalf and gives us a power to do what we could never do on our own. And I think that this view of fellowship so transforms our prayer life, uh, our, our meeting with believers, our understanding of why we're together. I mean, if we would ever grasp the biblical definition of fellowship, I suspect we might say, I don't know if we've ever had it, but we sure would like to have a grand adventure for the gospel together. See, I think fellowship might be the key to transforming our churches. What does the word fellowship bring to mind? We tend to use that term rather loosely, but there's a much deeper meaning when we're talking about a fellowship of the gospel. The book of Philippians points us to this greater reality that true fellowship centers around Christ and his gospel. It takes determination and often hardship can come our way. But as Paul and this church knew, nothing is more meaningful or brings more joy to our lives. I hope that today's message has encouraged you today. Be sure to tune in again tomorrow for another installment of this series with Dr. John Newfeld. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Dr. Newfeld's recent blog post, he challenged us to consider the words of Psalm 91. So let's reflect on just two sections of that psalm. Beginning at verse 1, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And verse 14, Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, 
I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. You know, in the midst of uncertain times, trust in the God that loves his children beyond measure. For more information about Back to the Bible, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.